imagine this situation where you had to fight unarmed a grizzly bear or an elephant or a lion or a gorilla or a crocodile. How many of you think you could beat one of those animals hand-to-hand combat? (laughs) Well, statistically, this is an absurd study, an absurd study, but thousands of people across the UK and across the United States of America were asked, how many of these animals do you think you could beat unarmed in a fight? And 5 to 10% of the people surveyed, of thousands of people, thought they could beat all of those animals. Not at once, but individually. They thought that they could beat a grizzly, an elephant, a lion, a gorilla, or a crocodile unarmed. It's absurd. And I get that it's only 5 to 10% of people. That's not a lot. But the fact that that answer is not that zero, uh, that 0% of people said that they could do that is shocking. Now, you might want to know, men scored generally higher. They thought that they could fight the uh, animals better than women could, and Americans generally scored higher than Brits in uh, what animals they thought they could take on. But this survey was just, it's a, a ridiculous study, but it does demonstrate something which I think we know. We have a distorted view of power because these animals are seriously powerful. And so I don't know what these 5 to 10% of people thought they could do, that they could uh, go up and punch an elephant, that what that's going to do something. Uh, there's a serious misunderstanding of power, a seriously distorted view of what power is. Well, Psalm 29, where we find ourselves this morning, is a psalm about God's power. It's a psalm about the power of God. And there's a question I want to ask you as we think about this topic of what our view of power is, is what comes to your mind when you think about God? What comes to your mind when you think about God? A.W. Tozer famously said that whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So a question I have for you today, as we think about the absurdity of a fist fight with a gorilla, is a much more important question, is when was the last time you thought or considered God's greatness, God's strength, God's power? When was the last time you've pondered his majesty or his glory? I mean, we just sang a bunch of songs that point us to those exact things. But when was the last time you really, truly thought about those things? You really, truly meditated on those truths? Psalm 29 is a help for us today to think about the power of God. The stunning, shocking, sometimes terrifying, glorious power of God. Now, there's nothing that biblically mandates that we need to stand for the reading of Scripture, but every once in a while, I think it's a good reminder for us of the authoritative word from God that he's given to us. So would you stand as you're able, as I read Psalm 29, God's word for us today. 
And if you truly do believe that this is God's word, at the end I will say this is God's word. And if you agree, uh, I encourage you to say out loud, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's holy word. A psalm of David. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. May Yahweh give strength to his people. May Yahweh bless his people with peace. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Take a seat. I'm going to be honest with you. As I studied Psalm 29 this week, it took me on a bit of a journey, a bit of a different journey than some other passages. Some kind of just, you know, they tell you what they're all about, and you, you know it right from the beginning. You're just plodding along, and it's always a gift. Uh, what I get to do every week is just study God's word and figure out how to try to communicate the truths within it to you. But Psalm 29 was a bit of a challenge in that it took me kind of on from this high to this low and back to this high as I studied it. Because when I look at it, I noticed first, this is a psalm of praise. This is different than the psalms that are generally around it. We've, we've spent a lot of time looking at psalms of lament and if it isn't a psalm of lament, often it's a psalm of, of some kind of request. It's asking God for something. This psalm, it's not a lament. It doesn't ask God for anything. It's just a declaration of who he is. And so I thought, wow, okay, this is just a psalm of praise. That's different, uh, but that's what it is. Then as I was studying a little bit more, I started realizing, wow, it's not just uh, happy, clappy praise, you know. There's some heavy stuff in this psalm. There's some heavy, heavy language. It's, it's stunning, really, it's, and it's intense. The more you read Psalm 29, the more you notice the, the weightiness of it. As we read words of, of trees being snapped in half and of, of mountains being covered in water and flashes of fire and thunder and the ground shaking, it, it really can feel troubling. And so that was uh, kind of the journey I was on. Like, oh, great, psalm of praise. Oh, boy, this is intense. But then all of a sudden at the end of the psalm, there's this quick turn where it ends with peace. And so it's the psalm of praise that feels like it gets, uh, in our understanding, a little bit chaotic all the way through with all this language of storms. And then it ends with just this uh, mic drop almost of peace. That was the journey I was on as I looked through this psalm and I started to wrestle with 
the sort of tension of that experience of studying this psalm and seeing that this psalm is about power and it's about control. This psalm is about God's greatness, but it's also about God's goodness. And that's an important thing to note as we study Psalm 29. Because if it's simply a psalm just about God's greatness, we can get a little bit worried, right? Because power without control is terrifying. We think of the Incredible Hulk, right? That's power without control. It's terrifying. Or greatness without goodness. That's, that's troubling. But goodness without greatness is also troubling because it offers no hope. There's no power there. So it's really important as we look at this psalm that we consider both God's greatness and his goodness. That's where our hope is found. And so the big idea from Psalm 29 is, I think it's just a call for us to behold God. To behold both the greatness and the goodness of Yahweh. Behold the greatness and goodness of Yahweh. And as we jump into that topic, considering how we can praise Yahweh for his greatness and his goodness, we start first uh, where the psalm starts by looking at uh, praising Yahweh for his glory. The first few verses are essentially a call to worship. Praise Yahweh for his glory. Verse 1 and 2 say, Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. The word here for glory literally means weight. Like not weight, like, oh, I need to wait for something, but weight like a heavy load, a heavy weight. That's the word here for glory. And when we see this uh, repeated thing through the Bible, when we see someone's name being referred to and talks about the glory due his name, name, we can say, is really someone, it's all that they are. It's their reputation. And we don't use that in the same way as, uh, as much as they would have when this psalm was written. But we understand what that means, that a name uh, equals reputation. We talk about someone's name being dragged through the mud, right? That's an expression that we know and that we use. And so this is a, a big claim in these first few verses where it's saying, ascribe or give Yahweh the glory, the weight, do his name or his reputation. You may have noticed as we comment on uh, every chance we get, the different names for God and that this psalm says the name of God, Yahweh, many, many times. And that becomes glaringly apparent when I say Yahweh every time we get there. And we've talked about this lots of times, but we all have different names and titles. You all have a different name and a title, depending on the context that you're in. So for me, when uh, the government looks at me, I'm just, I'm a number, or I'm just a man, you know? There's not a, a lot of personal connection. I'm just a human being. It's, I, I'm sure they care about me, but that's just who I am. That's the extent of our relationship. Other people uh, who don't really know me, but maybe they know what I do, might call me pastor. Uh, others of you, most of you, would know me as Aaron. And a few of you, my kids, would call me dad. Those are varying names and titles that really are built on the context of our relationship. And God is just like that throughout all of Scripture. I love that Trevor prayed in his prayer of adoration that, that he's a God of many names. Because through Scripture, we know we worship one God, but he's a God that has different names and titles, and they're, they're all okay, 
But we see different names like El, when the Hebrew word would be El or Elohim. That's where we see the word just God. That's a title. And it's the same word God as if they're talking about a false God. It's just, it just means like the English word God. It's not a name. It's a title. And it's not a bad word. We see that word right in this psalm too where it talks about God. It's a true statement. It's a title. Another word is Adonai or Lord. That's where we see Lord written, not in all capitals, but just small. And that's the same word that you might talk about a king as a Lord, but also it's a good word for God as our Lord. And then the final one is the one I referred to first is Lord, where it's written in all capitals in our Bible. And that is the name Yahweh, God's personal covenant name, the name that he revealed to his people for himself and that's not a title that is a name god's personal name so it's like when you meet someone and you're oh hello sir and they say no call me aaron that's in a far more beautiful grand scale that's what god has done for his people he said here's who i am so that's the name yahweh and with that name comes so much more because it's not an impersonal title with the name Yahweh, as I said, it's his personal covenant name. He, he revealed that name when he made promises to his people to be their redeemer. And so with that name comes so much in the best way possible baggage of all that God has promised, all that God has said, all that God has done, and all that he will do. And so I think it's a really notable thing. In a short psalm like Psalm 29, only 11 verses, that David, as he penned this psalm, wrote God's personal covenant name, the name Yahweh, 18 times. That's a lot. Now, I think it's an average of six times per psalm if you take all the hundreds and hundreds of uh, times Yahweh is written throughout the Psalter, and it's, you break, average it out, it's about six times per psalm. But this time we see 18 times in one little psalm. And there's so much that's wrapped up in the reputation, the glory of Yahweh's name. And so that is a big statement we see in verse 2. Ascribe or give to Yahweh, God's personal covenant name, the glory or the weight due his name or reputation. What a statement that is. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Praise Yahweh for his glory. And so a question for us to ask right away is, how do we glorify God? Well, the first and best way is, is just to shine a spotlight on God. That's what this psalm is calling for, saying, ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. It's saying, just look at him. He's glorious. And we see, too, that this is a call to worship that is far grander than simply an instruction of David to people. He's not just saying, hey, remember to worship God. Remember to ascribe to him the glory due his name. This is, this is cosmic. We see that those addressed in the first verse are heavenly beings, or your, your Bibles may say sons of God. This is, this is a grander scale than simply human worship, as if that's not an amazing thing already. It's saying the entire universe, the entire heavenly host, even the heavenly realms are to ascribe or give Yahweh the glory, the weight due his name. That's how this psalm starts. It's just an explosive monstrous, cosmic, macro, heavenly worship service to ascribe Yahweh glory. Praise Yahweh for his glory. And then we see that the rest of this psalm, in a sense, 
uh, kind of zooms out and gets a bigger picture, but in another sense actually zooms in and tightens in on Yahweh and his power. And so our second point this morning is to praise Yahweh for his greatness. Praise Yahweh for his glory and praise Yahweh for his greatness. Through the rest of the majority of the rest of the psalm, we see a, a description and a description after description of who God is. And it's intense, as we've talked about. It's intense. Intense descriptions of his power. And it's hard to describe God. I personally think we have various prayers in our service. If you have questions about the prayers we pray, you can find those in the footnotes of your bulletin. But we have a few different prayers through the service. And for me personally, I find the prayer of adoration, the prayer of praise, the hardest one to do. I think that is the hardest prayer to pray. And maybe that's just me personally, but maybe you can resonate with this. That it can be hard to praise God. Not because he's not worthy of praise, but because we simply just don't have the words or the brain size to comprehend God in all of his glory. We are really good at thanking God. And I find when I pray a prayer of adoration, it's really easy for me to just slip into thanksgiving because I can comprehend what he's, in a part, what he's done for me. That, that kind of computes. But to just simply praise him for who he is, it's hard because we don't have words for that. We don't have minds that can comprehend God in all of his glory. So adoration is hard to praise him, not just for what he's done, but for who he is. And so I'm so grateful for those who prepare and who lead us in corporate prayer and who who labor through the week to think about how can I just shine a spotlight on God. That's what our prayer of adoration is. How can I shine a spotlight on God in all of his glory? But it reveals how I have such a small view of God. I have such a distorted view, like the foolishness of thinking you could fight a gorilla barehanded is the the foolishness that I feel as I think about my, my view of God is just so small. My concept of power is just so piddly. And I can slip then, when I think about those things, I can slip into thinking of God as my buddy. I can think of God as my pal. And we can do that. We can, we can slip into thinking that God is, we have this kind of chummy relationship. He's kind of a slap on the back kind of buddy. But that's not the way David talks about Yahweh. Look at the ways that he describes God. In verses 3 through 10, I'm going to read through these things slowly. And I want you to, he gives us vivid imagery in this. It's poetry. It's a poem. I want you to imagine this imagery. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. 
The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. Can you see how we slip into these thought patterns and these, our lack of imagination, our lack of comprehension creates this artificial God that is just so small compared to this, the God we see in his word. Look at these descriptions. We talk about this explosion of thunder. Have you ever been, we've all heard thunder before, we've all seen lightning, but have you ever really been in one of those storms where you're sitting up against, uh, maybe you're picturing your childhood home and your, your face is pressed up against the front bay window and there's a storm just coming in and the lightning, you can see it flashing and the thunder and it's getting louder and louder and closer and closer. Or maybe you have memories of, of going camping and you're in a tent and there's about a material this thick between you and the torrential downpour and the storm that exists. And all of a sudden, this thunder comes like thunder you've never heard before. And it's just this explosion, this crack of thunder. And you don't just hear it with your ears, you feel it in your chest. And you look over to the person sitting next to you in the tent or in your front room and you just give them this look and I don't know how to replicate the look but it's a, it's just like ah and you don't it's this mix of fear and joy you don't really know your face is all contorted and you're half smiling and you're half terrified you're experiencing this this moment of fascinated wonder because for a second you came face to face with something that is just beyond your comprehension and you're not sure in that moment what to do. You're smiling, but you're also terrified. And the only words that can come out of your mouth are, whoa. Whoa. Maybe you shout it, whoa. Or maybe you whisper it, whoa. What was that? That's the, that's the feeling of awe. That's the feeling of awe. But what we see in this psalm, I think, is that feeling on an even grander scale. We see this all-encompassing poetic language of this storm that goes from sea to land and goes from north to south. It's this all-encompassing thunderous power. We see this God who is over the churning waters. We see this God who is over the, the geography, we get these different land references that don't mean a ton to us. We see Lebanon, we see uh, Syrian, we see Kadesh. What do those things mean? Well, they capture the all-encompassing nature of this psalm. Because when it's talking about being over the waters and then over the land, uh, Lebanon is in the far north. It's known for its towering trees. Syrian is the highest mountain in the, the Lebanon range of mountains. Kadesh, the wilderness of Kadesh, is the, the southern desert area. And so we get, all of a sudden, this picture that starts to get really big. We, we start to imagine this massive Mediterranean storm that comes sweeping in and goes across the world as they knew it. The readers of this psalm, the original hearers of this poem and this psalm would think this is a worldwide cataclysmic storm all the way from Lebanon, all the way to Kadesh. And we hear the description of this storm. It, it literally tosses nature. 
We hear about these trees, the cedars of Lebanon, which are talked about all through the Bible, about just these towering trees. And it sounds like they just get snapped like toothpicks by the voice of Yahweh. We hear about Sirion. This is, this is the most obscure one in my mind. Sirion, so the highest peak. Maybe we could just switch it out for Everest in our minds because we know Everest. When we hear Everest, we think of, okay, that's the tallest mountain. Makes Sirion like a young wild ox. And like Lebanon, the, the whole mountainous area to skip like a calf. We can just picture this young calf of this young wild ox bounding around, bouncing around. And that's the description of what the, Yahweh's voice can do even to the mountains. It's an impossible picture to imagine, but that's the kind of poetic, powerful language that David is using here to try to capture all that God is, how great he truly is. In verse 9, we hear uh, this kind of obscure line, the the voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. Uh, Your Bibles may have it translated different. Uh, Mine has a little footnote that says a revocalization yields, uh, makes the oaks to shake. And so it could mean that it twists the oaks or makes the oak shake. Or uh, the literal, most literal translation would just be saying it makes the deer writhe. And so the point of this verse with the other verses is it's just nature is writhing from God's power. From God's greatness. Strips the forest bare. It's nature shaking. And like that explosion of thunder that you feel in your chest, this description of the voice of Yahweh leaves the whole world at the end of verse 9 saying, glory. And maybe it's a yell. Maybe it's a whisper. But all in his temple, all in uh, under his rule and reign, cry, glory. And then we get to verse 10, which adds even a further dimension for us of this monstrous storm that we imagine. It says, Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. That word for flood there is used 13 times throughout the whole Old Testament. 13 times. So one is here in Psalm 29. Can you guess where the other 12 occurrences are? They're all found in Genesis 6, uh, the story of the flood in Genesis 6 to 8, or referring to that flood. So this word is only ever used for the worldwide flood, where the floodwaters of God's righteous judgment fell on the world. And here, as David chose to pick this word to say, Yahweh sits enthroned over, what should I say? He sits enthroned over the trees. No, I already used trees. Uh, He sits enthroned over the mountain. Well, I already used the biggest mountain. What can I say? Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Not just a flood, the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. And it triggers the mind of the reader to think of this cataclysmic event where the floodwaters of God's righteous judgment crashed in on the world. David is pointing us to something that makes us take a second look as we hear all this, wor- all this language about waters and trees being snapped and mountains being covered and, and animals writhing. It, it really starts to open up the lens on what Psalm 29 is for us. And this is what I mean. It takes us on a bit of a journey where we start to say, whoa, glory. It makes us pause. Because that's the God we worship. 
He's not a pat on the back buddy. He's the eternal king over the flood. All we can say is woe. All we can say is glory. And it causes us to pause and ask a question. Do we have a distorted view of God? Do we have a distorted view of God and his power? We see all throughout scripture right views and right examples. We think of Isaiah in the famous vision that he had in Isaiah chapter 6 where uh, the, the vision of the Lord is before him. And he, what does he do? He doesn't go in for a bro hug. Right? He falls on his face. He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. That's a right response to the glory of God. Or maybe we think of Luke chapter 5 where Jesus miraculously fills the nets for uh, who would be his disciples. And what does Peter do? He doesn't go over and give him a props and say, hey man, this is going to be so good for business. He falls on his knees in the bottom of a slimy fish boat and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. In Mark chapter 4, where the disciples are in the storm, not all that unlike the churning waters in the storm that we hear about in Psalm 29. These guys are terrified for their lives. Like they literally think they're going to die. Jesus stands up and says, peace be still. And the storm stops. What do they do? They don't laugh it off and like, ha, we weren't that scared, you know. What do they do? It says, they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What comes to your mind when you think about God? Is he your buddy? Or is he the sovereign, all-powerful Lord? Maybe even worse, is he your get-out-of-jail-free card? Or is he the eternal king who sits over the flood? Because we have a distorted view of power. I hope that none of you are in that 5 to 10% that think you could win a boxing match with an elephant. But I hope in a much more important way, because I'm sure those 5 to 10%, when they actually got face-to-face with one of those animals, would change their mind and jump in the other groove. But I hope in a far more important way, you have a right view of God and his greatness. We need to have a right view of the amazing, awe-inspiring, woe, glorious greatness of God. But I mentioned, too, that that's not where the psalm ends. That would be more than we could ever imagine. But remember, greatness without goodness is terrifying. And so the psalm takes a very sharp turn at the end in verse 11. And tells us, too, that we can praise Yahweh, not just for his greatness, but also for his goodness. As we come to verse 11, our minds are just full of this greatness, this immense glory, this terrifying image of a worldwide flood. And then in verse 11, it says, may Yahweh give strength to his people. May Yahweh bless his people with peace. The weight of God's just wrath should fall on us, just as it fell on the sinful world in Genesis 6. But then it's shocking. There's this note of peace. 
And it's the same note that we see in the story that this psalm points to, where God's justice fell on the world, but by means of an ark, Noah and his family were spared and saved. But God has made a way for us to know a peace just as sweet in the storm of his greatness and his judgment and his just wrath against sin. Because we deserve death for the sins that we have committed and we will commit. We have rebelled against God, but he has made a way for salvation. And that ark, that way of salvation, that means of escape is Jesus. Who, though he was completely sinless, was crushed under the torrent of God's just wrath. The voice of Yahweh, which is powerful, that snaps these trees like twigs, that is over the mountains and over all the earth, should fall on us for our rebellion against him. But because of what Jesus did, Jesus went and lived a sinless life, died the death that we deserve so that that full crushing weight would fall on him and not on us. That is good news for sinners like me. Our ark is Christ. Brandon Smith writes this, while a wooden ark delivered Noah from physical death, a wooden cross delivers us from spiritual death. Just as Noah obeyed God by climbing onto a boat to save a few, Jesus obeyed his father by climbing onto a cross to save many. Jesus willingly went to the cross. And it's this Advent season where we think about Jesus coming to earth as a baby. And that's a sweet image and a beautiful thing. But he came for a purpose. He came to live that sinless life and to die a death that we deserve that the immense power that we're thinking about, the full weight of God's just wrath would fall on him. And this amazing thought of God's power is exemplified in his life. We see little tastes of that through the miracles that he performed, even examples that just are the perfect opposite of this example where he calms the storm. But we see it most gloriously in his death And ultimately, not his death, but in his resurrection. Because in his death, he he took the penalty for our sin. But in his resurrection, he defeated death and sin itself. God's glory, God's power is on display in the most perfect and beautiful way we could ever imagine. Because Jesus did what we could never do. He defeated death. He defeated sin. And he did all of this so that we could know peace. As we heard in our call to worship, and as we read so often uh, in this Christmas season, Isaiah 9, as we hear about this promised Prince of Peace who would come. Well, this is the hope we have, that Christ would come and be our peace. Or as we heard in our assurance of forgiveness, that, that, that through what Christ has done, he has made a way now possible for us to have peace with God. May Yahweh bless his people with peace this hope and this promise that we see in Psalm 29, this sharp turn away from the terrifying wrath of God because of sin, is Christ. Psalm 29 doesn't pull punches. It's a cause for all of us to pause and to say, where do I stand with God? 
Because we will all stand before God one day in his perfect justice. And we have to think clearly about the storm, but we also have to think clearly about the peace that's promised. This passage is a sober warning for those who stand opposed to God, thinking that salvation can be found in uh, maybe plugging ears and just pretending that we don't acknowledge God for who he is or closing our eyes and, and pretending like we don't see who God is, or maybe thinking that we can earn salvation somehow. Friend, I hope you know that this is true. We have a better chance of fighting a gorilla than we have of standing on our own merit and our righteousness. The greatness and the goodness of God is our absolute hope. And so Christian, has your view of God become foggy? Have your eyes become glazed over to have a small view of God? You know the words, you sing the songs, you know the truth that God is great, but but what comes to your mind when you think about God? Pray that God would shape your mind to grow in an understanding of his greatness. I love the quote by C.S. Lewis where he talks about how we can be like ignorant children who are happy to play in the slums and make mud pies because we can't even imagine a holiday by the sea. We need to have a bigger view of the greatness and the goodness of God and think, how might that view of God, if we had a right view of the greatness and goodness of God, how might that change the way you live today? How might that change the way you think about those secret sins in your life? How might that change the way you interact with your unsaved family members at family Christmases over these next few weeks. If we had a right view of God in his perfect justice and his perfect, beautiful mercy, if we had a right view of God in all of his greatness and a right view of God in all of his goodness. We've quoted from another C.S. Lewis, a book that many of you may know, and we've quoted this section many times in sermons here at HGC, but I think it's worth quoting again from Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe when Susan is nervous about meeting Aslan, and and she's nervous because she thought he would be a man, but she finds out that he's a great lion. And she says to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 29, I think, tells us that message. That we worship a God who is unfathomable in his greatness, in his power. His glory, the weight of who he is, the the weight of his name is beyond comprehension. Of course he isn't safe. Of course he isn't just some sky genie with the voice of Robin Williams who gives you three wishes and makes your life happy. He's great. He's not safe, but he's he's also good. He's the king. He's the king who made a way for us not to be crushed under the floodwaters of justice, but instead tells us, not only tells us, but makes a way for us to know peace. And all we can do as we behold the greatness and the goodness of God just say whoa 
or better yet, glory. Let's pray. God, our Father, we have no words that can be enough to describe you, to comprehend you. Lord, we come before you even now humbled and amazed that you hear us now. That through your Son, we can approach your throne of grace with humility but also confidence knowing that Psalm 29 doesn't end with just you in this impossible place, but it ends with the promise of peace. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for all that you have done to make peace not only possible, but to make peace real for us even today. Lord, if there is anybody here who does not know this peace, God, you in your greatness and your goodness, we ask that you would soften and open their hearts to behold you in all your greatness and all your goodness. God, help us all to have a grander, a more beautiful view of you in all your glory.